Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wild, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rookrout. And this month's Oscars, finally, we get to say it. Yeah, month. <laughs> oh my God, it's March, finally. Today, we have our last episode in our Oscar Contender series. We will be discussing best adapted screenplay, original screenplay, director, and picture. We are finally here. And we are not alone today. We had to welcome back a very special guest. So Eric Anderson, we're so happy you're back today. Thank God we can do this for real this time. (laughs) Yes, I'm thrilled to be back. I'm so excited. You've been on... So Eric's the editor-in-chief at Awards Watch, but he's been on our past two award season fantasy drafts. But with last year's final Contenders episode, also we got rid of that because of what happened in the past few weeks of the award season so far. And I'm crossing my fingers that it's not the same way this year. I think things have finalized in a way already for most of these big categories that we'll be talking about. So we've also changed the format a little bit. So it's not like, who are we predicting? Who's going to win? It's, you know, we're talking about everybody, all the nominees per usual, like these contenders episodes. But Eric, thanks for joining us. We're so happy you're here again. Yeah, you have the finale of sorts, really. Finale of the the contenders episodes. (laughs) I like that. I'm season finale or I'm the and credit. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. Give me, yeah, I'll work. I can work with that. That's, yeah, truly, that's (laughs) the best, the best way to be. Speaking of some and credits and Let's start with adapted screenplay, our first category. So our guilds and precursors here, we have WGA, which BAFTA, USC Scripter, the Golden Globes, and the Critics' Choice Awards. I'm going to run through all of the nominees quickly, and then we can just discuss them as a group. So we have All Quiet on the Western Front, screenplay by Edward Berger, Leslie Patterson, and Ian Stokel. They are all first-time nominees. And this is adapted from the 1929 novel by Eric Maria Remark. I feel like I'm channeling my inner Allison Williams doing all of these announcements. Next, we have Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, written by Ryan Johnson. He was previously nominated for Knives Out, and it is inadapted because it's a sequel, which I think is sort of a strange rule, honestly, but anytime you have sequels, they'll end up inadapted. We have Living, written by Kazuo Ishiguro. This is his first nomination. It's adapted from the 1952 Kurosawa film Ikiru, which was adapted from the Tolstoy novel The Death of Ivan Ilyich. We have Top Gun Maverick, screenplay by Aaron Kruger. This is his first nomination. Eric Warren Singer, this is his second nomination. He was previously nominated for American Hustle. And Christopher McQuarrie, this is his second screenplay nomination. He won for The Usual Suspects. The story is by Peter Craig and Justin Marks, who are also both first-time nominees. It's based on characters from a 1983 California Magazine article called Top Guns. And lastly, we have Women Talking, screenplay by Sarah Polly. This is her second nomination in the category. She was previously nominated for Away From Her, and it's based on the novel of the same name by Miriam Tapes. So overall, what do you guys think of the nominees here in Adapted Screenplay? There's a couple of good ones, and this is a category that we've sort of been lamenting all season long as really bleak. 
as evidenced by Top Gun being here. It's too bad because it doesn't need to be or it didn't need to be because there's a lot of really good adapted screenplays that just never really stood a chance, but could have and should have been here. I think also to note, All Quiet won the BAFTA, which we can get to in a second, but we have two features from Netflix and then a few others that were in theaters. Top Gun obviously stuck around most of the year, and that was, to me, our surprise nomination. It took me a rewatch to understand why this was so special, but also looking through the screenplay, I was reminded of my first watch and why I didn't necessarily think this should have been here at first. But I love that there are basically three different credits for adapting this movie, which is kind of fascinating. And also there was a thing, so it was nominated at the USC Scripter, which it was withdrawn for, and they weren't really clear on why. And somebody from the committee or board had tweeted about this, and somebody replied, and they were like, I don't know why. This is why I'm saying this. I don't know. So even they weren't sure why it was withdrawn. But all of that aside, it's a movie that was so beloved this year, and I'm not surprised that it showed up in the end. Women Talking, I think it, you know, it was a great screenplay, great film, and one that is heavily reliant on dialogue. And I don't think that's the reason why it should be here. I really do like what she's doing and the conversation she's having throughout these women and how different everybody is. But then also to Living, the other film that was based on Akiru, very classic film, and I think one that could resonate with certain audiences, definitely an older crowd based on Bill Nye and what he's going through, but also a very timeless story. So I think we have a big range of things happening here that I'm glad we have that, whether or not I'm in love with all of them. Yeah, it's kind of strange because at first, like earlier in the season, I thought, oh no, we're really going to be scraping the bottom of the barrel for adapted screenplay. It sort of felt like the reverse of last year where adapted was really strong and original was really weak. This year, it felt like the opposite where all of the major contenders were in original and adapted. You sort of had a mix of films where you thought, oh, this could be a big contender or this could maybe receive one nomination and it could just be in this category. So I feel like that's an interesting mix up. But looking at the nominees, I mean, aside from Top Gun Maverick, which I don't really see as a great writing achievement, I think it's a fantastic technical achievement and is a movie that made me feel a lot when I was in theaters. I do think the other four actually pretty strong adaptations of the source material. So All Quiet on the Western Front takes a lot of liberties with the material, but having that be the first German language adaptation, I think makes it really strong. Living Ishiguru knows exactly how to detail those British class tendencies in his novels, and he carried that over here. And Women Talking, I think, is a great adaptation of that book. I think that the book works better in some ways than the film, but I think Polly really did take that source material to a cinematic level when she didn't need to necessarily. There was a lot there that could have just been straight page to screen, but I think she got really creative with what was on the page. Yeah, I, I think three of them, the Women Talking, Living, and, and All Quiet, 
do the most with their source material in not just a adaptation that is stuck in exactly kind of what you would think it's going to be. They all take uh, liberties to either change the original novels or really take the entire like characters and locations and transplant them somewhere else, which can be the more complicated version. I, you know, with Glass Onion, since there are, there's one returning character that's the yeah. same. It's sort of like the White Lotus of of movies, where mm-hmm. is the writer's branch going to possibly change or alter how they identify a sequel being adapted? Where mm-hmm. you have something like Top Gun, which really is a sequel. It's really same characters from the same movie, even though I do think it is a not like it's a nuanced story or screenplay by any stretch of the imagination it feels very much like the first one in a lot of ways it's not a bad thing i love i like the movie a lot but as a screenplay achievement i'm not really what i would consider having here especially when you think about like the nominations that it missed and how it was kind of a mixed bag for the movie altogether yeah, because it wasn't hitting everywhere at first. And then all of a sudden, I remember seeing that scripter nomination and then just thinking, oh, do we, you know, is this something we actually have to think about and take seriously as a screenplay nominee? And looking back, I don't think I have this in my predictions for screenplay at the Oscars. I can't wait for the screenplay for Mission Impossible 7 to get nominated. Oh, my God. Well, that's the thing with the credits, too. It's like you look and it's like, okay, Eric Warren Singer nominated for American Hustle. Christopher McQuarrie, who, yeah. yeah, won for The Usual Suspects. But he is sort of associated now with Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise movies. And no matter how badly we want Tom Cruise to work with PTA again or to be weird Tom Cruise again, it's like, no, he's doing this McQuarrie thing now. That's just how it is. And then Aaron Kruger, I was telling Nick earlier, I was like, do you know that Aaron Kruger wrote The Ring and Skeleton Key and all of the Transformers? I mean, yes, that is obviously not the greatest pedigree, but I actually love it when somebody Mm -hmm. that has such a pedigree, we'll just call it that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they get a chance to write a movie that is outside of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and something clicks, something happens. I, I love that. And I would consider Glass Onion, like what you're talking about, Eric, more of an anthology thing. And I don't think we see that a lot in film, which is maybe why it's easier to just shuffle it along in Adapted. I would kind of like to consider it its own thing because they don't reference Knives Out, apart from his character, obviously. But it's not like they're connected worlds until maybe in like the fifth movie you know we start to have this ryan johnson universe which who knows you know that could be fun start it is very much like a white lotus thing like oh if we could pick and choose from the different films and put them all together but it doesn't feel like that right now yeah well now i want jennifer coolidge to be in the next knives out (laughs) (laughs) it makes really a lot of sense <laughs> like that feels Anna. so perfect. <laughs> so, what would your write-in vote be? This, <laughs> I think I, I toyed with a few things, and this is going to be the first of many 
of my answers that are backed by what was a very emotional 2022 in film for me. I think I cried more at 2022 films than my entire life ever. I don't know if I was just, you know, going through a year long mental breakdown, which is actually not too <laughs> far from the mark, but I just responded to things just really quite viscerally. And I don't think, even though it's not my number one movie of the year, that the thing that I responded to the most in terms of being a great adaptation and something that just kind of affected me was uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I, thought, I think it's a genius adaptation. It, it keeps all of the scary stuff in and it has the fascism and it just has absolutely everything. I responded to it for it being an adoption allegory and that affected me more than I expected it to. But I just think that it it's exactly the right balance of adult animation and that doesn't talk down to grownups and animation that children and kids can enjoy, even if there is a good amount of scary stuff. Um, but I think they can absorb it, especially now. Uh, so I just think it it strikes the balance extremely well. I love that pick. Growing up, I loved animated movies that were really dark or that had scary stuff in them. Like those were my favorite ones. And even if I didn't understand all of those themes until I was an adult, like there was something about them that drew me in more than the ones that were very sugary sweet or innocent. So I loved that it felt like an ode to a type of animated film that we don't get anymore. Well, it's really interesting that like the the original Disney adaptation feels so much more like the biblical allegory that they wanted to put forward. And this is a little bit less. It's not really, you know, Jonah and the Whale and Blue Fairy in the same angel kind of way that, that we're used to seeing. Uh, it was much more, you know, Neil Gaiman just kind of cool, creepy, weird. And mm -hmm. uh, it's just a very different approach. And I think a great way to do it. I love that. I would write in Bones and All, one of my favorites from this year, one that I also cried in. And I will also second that I cried during lots of movies this year. And I mentioned that almost every podcast we had. So you're not alone. <laughs> And I did during this movie too. I connected more with these characters than I really expected from this fable that Guadagnino wanted to adapt. And I love the queer elements he adds to it, but also the feminist elements that he looked to the novel for and brought those into the film. And also this just sensibility that he adds to everything that he's always done. So I loved how it was a mix of that and a mix of horror and I think bringing that to the screen can be a difficult thing. And I mean, we can trust Luca and the actors. I think all of the elements were really spot on. And I loved this. I'll probably go read the book in the future and see because I did hear the ending was quite a bit different. I really need to read this book. I also feel like Luca Guadagnino, he should maybe consider 
adapting some YA novels, I feel like he would do a really good job with some of those like fantasy themes and just making them like the horror and the romance combining those. I feel like he could really nail that. <laughs> if they let him made a, make a hard R version. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just crank it up. <laughs> yeah. My write-in vote is for After Yang, which is adapted from a short story called Saying Goodbye to Yang. And in a similar way, I think, to Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio and Bones and All, it's almost crazy to me that this is an adaptation, that it's not an original product of the director, because you can feel, in your cases, del Toro and Guadagnino, but in my case, Koganata, through the script so much like it just feels like he is living and breathing this vision and with after yang it just you know he hasn't made many films it's his follow-up to columbus and it just felt like again this perfect creation for him and i read the short story and it's a perfect adaptation in taking select things from that story but making them his own and it's such an interesting concept it's very futuristic it is sci-fi in it, but it never like loses sight of its emotional core. And the short story does that as well. But I think Koganata really takes it a step further. You are left feeling like I, I felt the same way after seeing this that I did after seeing The Tree of Life. It's funny that, I mean, the three things that we just selected are such riskier fable-like material. Almost mm -hmm. everything we just picked has fable-like presentations where you're you're not taking things at a literal and surface level and just much more interesting choices sorry but we nailed it i think we did <laughs> that's why we have this writing category <laughs> and who do you think should win eric i do think uh that sarah Polly should win for women talking i think it is a fantastic transportation of the location and characters to something that is eerily relatable now and the way that she keeps the place and the time period not a secret but unrevealed until pretty close to the end gives that even more power um i just i think it's a brilliant script yeah, I would say women talking as well. I think what Sarah Polly does, I really noticed on my second viewing of the film, which is, it feels like when you're first watching it, the dialogue is, it's really strong. And it's just constantly, you're going from one character to another's point of view, and the points of view are so different. And what I was struck by on the second watch was how quickly she keeps the pace moving of the story, I expected it to feel just very dour and heavy and you feel bogged down by all of these women sharing their very emotional stories that can be hard to listen to. But I think it flies by. Like she has you hanging on every word throughout this film. So I think of all of the adaptations here, we're thinking of them also just strictly as adaptations of what you take from the source material and how you make that cinematic. I think she was the most successful. And I think too, she doesn't really miss an opportunity to have some levity and some fun 
it's a lot funnier than I think anybody would have expected. I think a movie like this has an impression on people where it's going to feel like homework, feel like I have to like it, I have to watch it, I feel obligated in a whatever awards kind of way. And why am I going to, you know, watch a group of women talk in a barn for 90 minutes when it's really a whole lot more than that? But yeah, it is really funny. Michelle McLeod, hilarious, but also heartbreaking. Sheila McCartney, hilarious, heartbreaking. It just, it, it has so much more than I think people thought that it was going to, or gave it an opportunity. Yeah, I think, you know, when the initial stills came out or trailer came out, people were a little dissuaded by that. But once you get into it, I, on both watches, was really moved by the flow of the dialogue as well. As they veered this conversation that is very violent and talks about abuse, it still didn't feel like it was educational or forcing something on the audience, which I think can happen a lot of times too. And then it feels bogged down and you kind of separate yourself from what you're watching in the material. So I love that throughout, you know, whoever is speaking, I was really dialed into the characters and the dialogue and the message, the themes. I love how she navigates between everybody in this barn or you know, you're back at the home with Francis McDormand's character who is totally separate and does not want to belong with whatever they're saying. Mm-hmm. Legend so, Scarface Jan. <laughs> the best character name of the year. Scarface Jans. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> so yeah, I would love to see her win here as well. It's, you know, these two films that this is between this and All Quiet are pretty heavy pieces, but I think... I would go for women talking. Another quick thing about women talking before we move on to original screenplay. I think that Sarah Polly makes a really smart decision to change the narrator from the book because in the book it's narrated by the Ben Wishaw character by a man. And that is his narrative function throughout the story, which I think works really well in the book and makes so much sense. But to change that, to hear not just a woman's voice but a young girl's voice at the beginning is much more powerful to what she is trying to bring out and the themes that she's trying to convey to if you're telling a story about generational trauma to start really with the youngest members narrating that well and that that's what really shows the intelligence behind the adaptation is is that that Yes, it might have worked and made much more sense from the the novel's standpoint. Look, doing it as a film and cinematically, it's going to feel different, read differently, and be perceived differently. Mm-hmm. So, and obviously, it's you're not just going to have Ben Wishaw telling stories and these women not saying anything. Obviously, but still, it's just a a great example of her making the right choices. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to original screenplay. We have similar guilds and precursors here, just not the USC scripter, which is only for adapted. Our nominees here, we have The Banshees of Inishirin. This was written by Martin McDonough. This is his third screenplay nomination. He has a win in short film. He was previously nominated for In Bruges and Three Billboards. Next nominee is Everything Everywhere All at Once. 
This was written by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. This is both of their first nominations. Next is The Fablemans, written by Steven Spielberg. This is his first nomination in this category. And then also Tony Kushner. And this is his third writing nomination, previously for Munich and Lincoln. Next is Tar, written by Todd Field. This is his third screenplay nomination, previously nominated for In the Bedroom and Little Children. And then last but not least, we have Triangle of Sadness, written by Ruben Usland. And this is his first nomination in this category, too. So we have zero previous winners, and I'm very shocked by all of the names we have. So it will be exciting. Whoever wins will finally get somebody's first win. So, Eric, what do you think about this group or if you have any spotlights you'd like to make on them? Honestly, I think it is a really good group, more so than adapted. I think it is fantastically representative of the year, which I think as a category is pretty great. I mean, adapted having Glass Onion as basically a full on comedy is pretty cool. A comedy getting nominated for screenplay period or picture please let that happen more. But this is, yeah, I think this is really representative of the types of movies, of things that are, you know, critical favorites, but can be audience favorites too. It's wild. This is Spielberg's first nomination here, but he's not, you know, big on the writing side anyway. He just obviously needed to be when telling his own story. I think this is McDonough's best screenplay by... A pretty significant margin. And I like Imbruge a lot, but this is working on an entirely different level. There were quite a few Eat the Rich movies this year. That was one of the biggest themes of the year. And Triangle of Sadness getting in is kind of great. I, I know it's very divisive. I really liked it a lot. I love this nomination. I think Everything Everywhere All at Once is really underrated in the screenplay department. It did very well with critics, but I think the screenplay is really an exceptional part of it and it really is the emotional hook. And I think Tar is, I mean, it's hard to fault like any second of this screenplay, whether it is dialogue or structure. I can't fault it in any way. Yeah, I can't either. I think it's a perfect script. And yeah, with the Fablemans, you know, when this was announced, I think I I thought Tony Kushner's going to finally win an Oscar. <laughs> but I, I am happy. Too. Yeah. I'm happy he's nominated though because I do think pairing up with Spielberg to tell not just the story of his childhood and coming to discover films, but I think the movie is far more subversive and provocative than it's given credit for i think it's often described as this magic of the movies biopic about a director we're so familiar with but there's a lot in there that i would never have expected spielberg to include about his family or about realizations that he came to at such a young age about art and how he's processing that now I agree about Banshees. I think it's McDonough's best script. I think that every character in the film is written perfectly. And I think that even the minor characters who just exist in Inisharan, who our main characters interact with, like that woman who reads all of the mail. <laughs> I love her 
that's that would be incredible yeah right she's such like a curtain twitcher nosy nosy neighbor (laughs) or like the people at the pub every single character just feels like they live and breathe in a Sharon and sometimes I have so many issues with screenplays where I just feel like the characters solely exist in that frame in the film and they don't have a life outside of that but with Banshees all of those characters just felt so fully realized and perfect for the actors who played them and yeah I mean Triangle of Sadness for me I am not an Ustland person but I do think it's the most successful eat the rich movie that we have from a screenplay perspective I know a lot of people were big on the menu I was not I thought Triangle of Sadness was more successful on that front I'm not as hot on it but I think it's a movie that I don't even know when I saw it months and months ago I am still thinking about the ending to this day so even though you know the second act was way over the top and totally took me out I'm still thinking about this movie and I think that's the power that he has and he also has over the academy I mean, we'll talk about him again. This is the first time we're talking about this movie on the pod during these Contenders episodes. But with all the other nominees, I was shocked by the Fablemans, by how emotional I was and how connected to it I was. I think he went deeper into his personal life than I really expected him to, all the way from being this young Sammy and looking ahead to his future and everything everywhere being really about this mother-daughter relationship banshees about this friendship and tar this is just flawless writing i mean he's back after 16 years and just gave us this absolute masterpiece so i love tar i've rewatched these four films and you know not to say that i won't with triangle in the future but it is a really strong category and we've explained a lot of that on previous episodes we don't have to repeat a ton but Great works. Over the last month, I was working with one of my writers on this profile piece on Kiwi Kwan, and he revealed in it that when working with the translations from Chinese to English, and it was the the writer Kevin Lee is Chinese American, so they were going back and forth in in Chinese and English and everything. It was really great, and. Quan explained that the way that some of the translations were laid out weren't really working well because the way the, the, the language looks in writing versus speaking it and, and having a direct English translation wasn't really aligning really well. So his wife, Echo, did all of the translations that are in the movie. I thought that was Such a fascinating little tidbit. I was so thrilled when I read that. She should have a screenplay credit. Thank you. (laughs) I would not uh, hate that. It should absolutely. (laughs) Yes, there need to be two Kwans winning uh, Oscars in two weeks. Yes. (laughs) So, Eric, what would your write-in vote be? You know, as we're kind of going on about dialogue and language and how much you know that is such a, an important part of of screenplays and sometimes you know for voting and for people that's kind of what they think that's all i think a screenplay is 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 dialogue when it's also structure and the story and 
this will not be the first time I mention After Seven on this podcast. It is my favorite film of the year. I think it is a gorgeously constructed story. It feels almost like a ghost story sometimes because of how it's told and what happens or what you think happens, what might happen. And that to me for this was such a strong hook for me. Not that there isn't great dialogue, there is, but I just think it is a deceptively simple story with extremely complicated characters. I love that description of it as a ghost story. I feel like that is what it is ultimately, right? People talk about it as a memory piece and as someone visiting her memories, but really it does feel like a ghost story and in its structure too, right? That's what has really stuck with me about After Sun is how the story unfolds. And as you're watching it, you can almost feel it slipping through your fingers and you're trying to understand it the entire time. And then when it finally clicks, waterworks. <laughs> oh, God. It's yeah, it's exactly that. Yeah, I, I think about the, the way that it uses 90s video cam and reflections in the TV. That feels like a, a ghost story to me. That feel not like the ring, you know, but like right. it feels like like <laughs> like he's a presence in his own life that is like not really there. My write-in vote would be for a film we haven't talked about, Nick, because it just hasn't come up really at all. Mm-hmm. Is Terrence Davies his film Benediction, which. I really loved this was just a film that totally knocked me out. And I think that I also loved A Quiet Passion, his Emily Dickinson film. But I feel like we always around Oscar season and, you know, even thinking ahead to next year, biopics just dominate. And a lot of times biopics are these Wikipedia pages on screen where they're very paint by numbers. We know exactly what's going to happen in these cradle to grave stories and here it is not that at all this film is all about theme and tone and creating this great sense of melancholy the film is so subtle but you just feel and understand so much of what this character is going through not just in his personal life with another man but with what he's experiencing internally in his own private life the way that that's shown in the screenplay and I love when screenplays also just like don't tell you everything and don't put everything out there clearly and try to make you really think and understand not just through the dialogue but in how the characters are drawn and how they move through the story and I feel like Benediction was a great example of that I think it's a fantastic screenplay and I highly recommend the film if people haven't seen it Yes, very much. I do as well. I do love the present day, past day kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. I, I love that it's, he's a poet, it's a biopic of a poet, but you're not just, you know, listening to fucking soliloquies the whole time. It's not really about right. that. And with a biopic of a poet, you could expect that to just be like the entire script, right? But it's mm-hmm. it's not really a part of it in that way at all. In the way that you would expect. And it's on Hulu, Nick, to answer your question. Oh, great. So my write-in vote would be for Nope, 
that would be for Jordan Peele. He's won before for Get Out. I think this was an incredible movie, and Sophia, we mentioned it multiple times in saying that it should have been nominated for something. I think, you know, if it was anywhere, this would have been the place. I think what Jordan Peele is doing, not only in looking at Hollywood, but looking to the past too and making us think about looking and watching and phenomenons and what we have become as audiences too and and what we like to watch on screen. So it plays with so many different genres. I think it would have just been a masterful nomination. He talked about Westerns and looked at The Wizard of Oz for inspiration. And it goes into action and sci-fi. And I love how he puts that all into the dialogue we have with Daniel Kaluuya and Brandon Perea and Kiki Palmer and Stephen Yun. I mean, it's just a fascinating movie that you can rewatch and rewatch and rewatch and still get new things out of. It's so funny because the other theme of this year was love letter to cinema. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And... This, while not a love letter, it was definitely in that department, but even more so, it was a love letter to film. Because when you're in a world that does not have electricity and you yeah. have a mm-hmm. crankable roll of film, then you can get shit done. That's a that's a pretty direct statement. Yeah. Which is kind of great i mean not only was it beautiful and that it should have been nominated for cinematography but literally it is about cinematography and capturing that perfect shot it's just like uh such it's on the nose but in such a beautiful way that it uh, yeah i wish it was here (laughs) so of these five who do you think should win i know i know what i wrote down and i do think i still believe it i do think tar is the best screenplay i have been leaning toward everything everywhere recently i'll talk a little bit about why later but um no i think i'll stick with tar that's just that's like an all-timer screenplay you could put even though of the the concept of cancel culture is a very new one the concept of a of a person in power having a downfall is not you could put this story in any decade since the beginning of film and it would still be an all-timer with like this type of structure i don't know why but on my drive home today i was thinking about the podcast and what we're going to talk about it popped into my head how much i want to see a 70s version of tar with jenna rollins like right now oh my god you want jenna rollins and i want faye dunaway (laughs) yeah i just started going backwards i'm like this could exist in any decade Mm -hmm. it's that kind of timeless story but beautifully constructed yeah it really could exist in any decade i always think of like young glenda jackson in it i feel like she would have killed it yeah. Barbara Stanwyck. Oh my, there's so many people who could have done this they, and could they, have. Oh. They all would have pushed people off the stage. Yeah. <laughs> Easily. Yeah, for me, it's tar. I need to go through and read the screenplay and like watch the movie as I'm reading it just to see how it was adapted from the page because it's 
so beautiful, but I remember first seeing it and I was just awestruck. My jaw was on the floor, not only in the performances, but the structure and how we navigate her life in these different formats too. Starting the movie on an Instagram live and then moving to her. So it's like the way it changes perspective of Lydia Tarr and in featuring the characters around her too. It's it's fascinating. My vote in this category would be for a screenplay that begins this way. Based on the script's page count, it would be reasonable to assume that the total running time for Tar will be well under two hours. However, this will not be a reasonable film. There will be tempo changes and soundscapes that require more time than is represented on the page, and of course, a great deal of music performed on screen. All this to say, if you are mad enough to greenlight this film, be prepared for one whose necessary length represents these practical accommodations. That says it all right there. It is such a brilliant character study, and it isn't just how Lydia Tarr speaks to the other characters or interacts. It's how she moves. It's the music that she conducts. It's the sounds that we hear her hearing and responding to. And just the level of specificity and detail of this screenplay is breathtaking. Definitely read it if you haven't yet. It is such a wonderful read. It's fascinating. And I wrote about this in my review of the film because I was just so wrapped up in how Todd Field created this very specific world of classical music that starts with that Adam Gopnik talk, which is such a savvy way to establish exposition, but is also funny. Like the tone of this movie and the sense of humor is spot on. I love that. And again, with the details, I recently bought three books by Vita Sackville-West, the author of the book Challenge, which Lydia Tarr has. And Todd Field even talks about her as an author, Vita Sackville-West, who wrote the book that Lydia is gifted in a very strange way in the film, but how this author's backstory and her life relates to what's happening on screen it's like those those details really matter too not just the easter eggs and all of the ambiguity that's there but it's it's just all of the thought that went into it i think you can feel it every time you watch it and it's highly rewatchable i love rewatching this movie it's insane that this movie is two hours and 45 minutes long and i just i on the way home too i was listening to the oscar wilde podcast with film editing and cinematography and all that and there, there is no, I don't know who gave Todd Field the right to make a two hour and 45 minute movie that feels like a 90 minute sprint. Not that it's everything's happening too fast, but just that there, there isn't, there's never a point of boredom or a lull or anything at all. And to, we've had a lot of long movies this season. They're usually dramas. I mean, they're usually action movies, sci-fi movies that have a lot of visuals going on in the screen to kind of keep you occupied. Mm-hmm. And this is not the case. So I just think his, again, his his writing structure absolutely are the reason for that, as well as really, really, really good editing. Even in those quiet moments where maybe you think there is going to be a lull, there's some visual element where there's 
either a beautiful shot or you learn something new about a character that if you're not watching, you're going to miss. So yeah, it's always, there's always something going on, whether you think you're going to have the time to breathe or not. And this is a ghost story too. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. There's thrillery ghost moments in this as we barrel to the end. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I love the bizarre things that happen in this movie that never have an explanation. Oh, mm -hmm. one of my favorite things about it. All right. Our next category, we have best director. Here are guilds and precursors. We have DGA where Daniels recently won the BAFTA where Edward Berger won for all quiet on the Western front, the critics choice awards where the Daniels won in the golden globes where Steven Spielberg won. Our nominees, we have Martin McDonough for The Banshees of Inisherin. This is his first nomination in the category. We have Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert for Everything Everywhere All at Once. They are also first-time nominees. We have Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans. This is his ninth nomination in the category. He previously won for Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, films that no one has heard of before. Not a big deal or anything at all. Todd Field for Tar. This is his first nomination in the category. And Ruben Usland for Triangle of Sadness. This is his first nomination in the category. So a lot of first-time nominees in this category specifically. They might have been nominated elsewhere or might be nominated somewhere else this year. But for the most part, I mean, Steven Spielberg is the only veteran in terms of recognition in this category specifically. But looking at the whole group, what do you guys think about our five nominees? I mean, it's a, it's a really good set of nominees. It's wild that this is five for five with original screenplay. That's really unusual. But it does speak to the love of auteurs and the love of people that are, well, men, that are the <laughs> tellers of their story. I think this, this happened in, what was it, 2009? Too, where the original screenplay nominees were all the same as the director nominees. Yeah, Avatar, Hurt Locker. Yeah, it was the same. It, it again, it this this represents the, the the depth of field of styles this year, just like we talked about in original screenplay. There's going to be a, not a similar conversation, but it's it's kind of similar. You <laughs> yeah, you have you you have everything here. It's interesting that, you know, our international pick, if you want to call it that, is Ruben when, you know, Edward Berger and the Academy loved All Quiet too, having the most nominations and so did BAFTA where he won. So it's kind of like, are they just really obsessed with the Triangle of Sadness? I could have expected a few more nominations from All Quiet, but yeah, I think overall, again, it's a mix. Martin McDonough it's kind of his time. He's been nominated for multiple projects that in another world, I would have expected him to win the BAFTA and him ready to win the Oscar too. But there's lots of love behind these movies with different audiences. And we've talked about again on the pod, like I love the Fablemans and a lot of people love everything everywhere. And again, Banshees and BAFTA and European audiences with that and Triangle and Tar kind of hits with audiences that I wouldn't have expected to have loved the movie including friends so it's kind of refreshing to see that you know a lot of these directors that 
we've seen other films or short films or music videos from have come back and really honed in their craft and made these wonderful films that I think will stay long beyond this year, the next year where people can revisit them. And, you know, looking at years past, you kind of find either winners or nominees that fade into the background. But there are a lot of these that I think will stick around. The comment about Ruben Usland and Edward Berger that is interesting is now I've realized this year that this group doesn't just like international directors. They like established directors if they're international directors a lot of times. So like Ruben Usland, he's won the Palme d'Or twice. So it doesn't even matter that his film isn't getting craft nominations. That group, like it is in some ways an old guard and they like the people who have been recognized abroad, like at film festivals or like if you think of like Pavel Pawlikowski, people like that getting in, Vinterberg, there are these people who have been working in the film industry for a while. And for someone like Edward Berger, I think in the future, if he directs another film like All Quiet on the Western Front, I think we could expect to see him here. But they just don't love new people which is funny to say considering we just said there are a lot of first time nominees here but they've also for the most part like Todd Fields and Martin McDonough have really been working to get you know that credit as directors not just writers I feel like for a while and that's why I sort of doubted McDonough getting in in the beginning is even though Banshees was so strong I thought maybe they'll just keep recognizing him as a screenwriter and not as a director. But I think he does a fantastic job directing The Banshees of Inisherin. I think it is also, it's not just his best writing achievement. It is his best achievement as a director. And for Spielberg again with The Fablemans, I know throughout the season and when it premiered at TIFF, people just had a lot of comments about, oh, this is just Spielberg making a movie about his childhood. That's all this is. But again, like I mentioned with the screenplay, he really showed, I think, the power that cinema and that art, it's had a hold over him for a really long time. And to create this sort of meandering slice of life film that is so full of heart, but also full of darkness is, I don't know, it's a really incredible achievement, I think, for him as a director. And... Yeah, I think this is a strong group, though. I do wish we had a woman here, but I think of the five nominees, I think most of their work, I generally enjoy. The Usland versus Berger thing is pretty fascinating, and I think I think it mostly came down to timing. Yeah. I think maybe a tiny bit more time, and it could have been swapped out. Um, but Usland feels like, like Yorgos Lanthimos, where it's like, celebrated European director mm-hmm. making their first English language movie. Okay. Now, now we're bringing you in. Now you're, mm. now we're, we're good with you. Mm. And I, I think if, yeah, I think it really kind of came down to timing because clearly all quiet did well, but like, like you said, Nick, it missed some, a few really, you know, big things like a lot of, of, of movies did this year. And so it just branches in timing really. I was just thinking of something from the the podcast again that I, from your 
that one and listening to you guys talk about the turn down for one video. Oh my God. Yes. Because I mean, yes. I, I was surprised that you hadn't seen it because it's like really one of the most iconic videos of all time. Like ever, ever, ever. It is so insane. The tits and breaking down. It is a lot. It is great. It is funny and cool and makes perfect sense from the guys that made Swiss Army Man. And it's funny because we were, we were talking about screenplay earlier in screenwriters that have past films that you know might not be the most respected and here they are with like their big breakthrough and even though swiss army man is kind of a cult favorite it's so wild to jump from you know music videos like that to a movie like swiss army man and then get to everything everywhere which feels like it it never loses the thread of who Quan and Scheinert are as directors. It's not like a different style or a different movie so that they can, you know, make a different name for themselves. It's exactly everything they've done before. Uh, and that's really cool. I really like that. I'm a big fan of Fableman's. I think the moments where he's showing himself as a beginning director, and since we have those home videos, to watch and to see and to how he created that and, and the gunshots and you know bombs going off and all that and then he gets to recreate it i think the way he does it is it feels like i don't know like inside information or something it's really mm -hmm. kind of cool but yeah. it's also so super spielbergy cinematic it's cranes and dollies and and movement and handheld that just feels just so so gorgeously cinematic it's my favorite it's my favorite part of the movie is are those sequences it's kind of what i what i wanted the most from it i think it's mm -hmm. pretty extraordinary i mean we talked about why todd field is so extraordinary here that the screenplay is a plus but it's nothing without him behind it too and yeah like i said i think this is McDonough's best by a long shot. I loved listening to you talk about the chopping the fingers off like the Cinderella sisters and uh -huh. the two. It's fantastic. And it's, it's a great group. And with the Daniels also, I went to a Q&A on my second viewing of the movie and just hearing them talk about all of the creative choices that they made on a very low budget and how they would make decisions of where to scout locations and how they had to get really creative with getting things done very quickly or shooting all of the same scenes in one particular building because they couldn't afford to go somewhere else or how Michelle Yeoh and Ki Hui Kwan doing their own stunts and figuring all of that out. It just feels like, I think it's a story that not just voters and people in the Academy can connect with, but young, cinephiles and movie watchers like feel like this is something that they could maybe make one day or that they can understand that it's not directing doesn't have to be this process that is this highbrow exclusive thing that is only available to a specific group who goes to film school and who has a who follow a very particular path it can be 
getting together with your friends and making a movie on the fly. And that is how they talk about this experience. We know that's not actually, there's a lot of thought that went into this film and they have A24 and everything like that and great producers, but it still has that grit and grime to it that I think a lot of people are really inspired by. It's not polished and that's what people like. The fanny pack fight sequence, the whole like first half mm-hmm. of the fight sequence at, at um, the IRS was shot in one day because they had like 18, 19 days total. Wow. Hey, come on. Yeah. Who doesn't love that? Who can't be totally inspired by that? Having that at one end and then Spielberg on the other, at that that's it. That's how you encapsulate filmmaking. Okay. So write in votes. Who would your write in vote be? Very easy for me. It's Charlotte Wells after Sun, and there isn't even anything close. That's a great pick. Also, matching with original screenplay. So you're really following the trend of the the category. <laughs> there I, you go. I, I am here <laughs> for the auteurs. I'm here. For <laughs> I'm so excited to see what Charlotte Wells does next. I mean, just what an incredible young talent who clearly has her own visual language. That I'm so excited to see. You know how she puts that into her next feature i'm super into you know every new generation and where they draw their inspirations from and she's a 90s kid as Mm -hmm. the movie takes place in the 90s so it has you know little bits and, and hallmarks but i didn't feel like anything she was doing was derivative or a ripoff or like directly lifted it just it was it was too personal to not feel like a unique experience mine would be for park chan wook sophia you mentioned established international directors so this is my established international director (laughs) because he has so many wonderful films the handmaiden another film that was wrongfully not included at the Oscars just one of the most beautiful films ever yeah it would have been a cinematography win for me that year but also old boy one of my favorites and then thirst just these three movies alone you talk about completely different genres a vampire movie and this sexual erotic thriller and old boy this thriller oh my god it's just he's a wonderful director and Maybe I didn't connect with Decision to Leave as much as other people. His visuals, his blocking, the way he translated this film is just undeniable. And he is absolutely an auteur that needs an Oscar nomination. I mean, how does he not have one yet? (laughs) He's a master of form. Decision to Leave for me was just, it was fun to watch because of the way that he directs films. Yeah, it's beautifully put together. And my pick would be Gina Prince-Bythewood for The Woman King. I think she's a director who's been working for a really long time, and she deserves credit and recognition and an Oscar nomination. I think that what she did with The Woman King, not just in how she directed this film, but getting this film made and making it in the way that she did was such an achievement. I thought... This film really surprised me in that I thought it was just going to be a really standard swords and sandals epic. 
And it was so much more than that. It was actually this like beautiful adventure, but also this story about mothers and daughters and female relationships, empowered leadership. And I think that the way that she directed her actors, you're seeing Viola Davis give one of the best performances of her career and Tuso and Beidou give a performance that is just as good as Viola Davis, which is absolutely insane for a young actress to be able to say that. But yeah, I think that what Gina Prince-Bythewood does deserves my write-in vote and a nomination. Who do you think should win, Eric? I think I'd ultimately land on on Todd Field, though. For everything that, that I've, I've already said, this is, he has such mastery and control of this story. He wrote it for Kate Blanchett. It probably would not have even ever happened if everything had not aligned in order for it to happen. And we're lucky that it even exists. We had to wait 16 years for it, but here we are. And he was robbed the first or second, you know, the first time for uh, in the bedroom. So at least we are, at least we have this. Yeah, I can't really say enough great things about every single choice that he makes. The whole end credits at the beginning thing. Mm-hmm. I can't, I mean, I didn't see it at Venice, obviously, but I saw it at Telluride just a few days later when it was there. And that audience was losing their minds. They didn't know what was going on. And Telluride audiences are really fun because it's all of us goopy press dorks, people that live in Telluride, and then massive celebrities. Like the whole cast of Women Talking was like, you know, three rows behind us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they went to everything, by the way. And these aren't giant theaters. These aren't like can palais of 2,000 and 2,500 people like 600 max. Uh, So it's intimate and you can hear all the chatter. You can hear everybody wondering, is something going wrong with the projector? Uh, Like all throughout, chitter chatter, chitter chatter, until we kind of really all shut up and figured it out. That is such a risky, ballsy choice that could come off really arrogant Mm-hmm. but it doesn't it's clever as fuck that's the whole film whether it is how it ends whether it's i'm petra's father and that whole hand that rocks the cradle sequence which mm-hmm. so carefully threads the line of serious and absolute falls out funny it is a hair from going wrong but it doesn't he just has total control, like Lydia Tarr. Exactly. That was what I was just going to say. It's like Lydia Tarr has her audience like in this death grip for the entire runtime, practically. And that is how Todd Field is with us. And from the first shot all the way to the very end, it just was so refreshing for me to fully trust a filmmaker to like take me to places that I could never see coming or expect. Like I was genuinely surprised as I was watching Tar. And it's funny that you said that about the opening credits because one of my friends, she watched it recently and she was watching it on Peacock and she texted me 
and asked me, she's like, is there something with the credits? Can I fast forward through this? And I was like, no, don't fast forward. You need to sit through them. (laughs) And she did. And then she understood. But it's just a funny thing where Nick, you mentioned this earlier too. A lot of friends that I would never expect to sit through the runtime of Tar, let alone enjoy Tar. They keep surprising me and saying like, this is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. What is this? This is one of the best performances I've ever seen. And I feel like that so much of that is because Todd Field does not pull any punches. He made the exact movie somehow that he was set out to make. And the greatest compliment I can give really is that there were a lot of sequences in this movie that reminded me of Rosemary's Baby like that neighbor across the hall. I still don't know what was going on there. I never will. And that's okay. (laughs) But there are just so many creepy little things that just feel like 60s, 70s. We never get that anymore, right? We never get that type of tone that just feels wrong and a little bit dangerous in our films. And of course, you know, he's a student of Kubrick and this is a Kubrickian character study. Yeah, I think that it's not just an achievement in writing. It is a pitch-perfect, fantastic achievement in directing. Apartment for sale robbed for original song. Yes. Again, though, right? Like, a hair away from being totally wrong. Like, Mm -hmm. it's that right between going into camp and being terrifying. (laughs) That whole scene could have been cut, and you, I mean, you wouldn't know it, but getting that again that little like like women talking mm-hmm. having that that moment that break that audience break yeah. kind of letting you off the hook for a little bit oh my god it is priceless and that scene is so goddamn funny mm-hmm. oh, so funny let him make this napoleon kubrick thing that spielberg is doing i would love their two versions I'd rather see that than ridley scott's Napoleon or whatever it is I yeah but yeah my pick would also be for Todd Field just watching him in interviews too is beyond fascinating like yes we get this screenplay which we've talked about in his direction but to watch people ask him about how he feels about certain things or where his inspirations came from and he just delves into this entire history that I have no idea even existed it's like he is so smart and knows exactly what he wants and what he's doing it's like scary to even want to approach that but he is just so in tune with everything that he wants to say and that he's been wanting to say for so long what you just said though that was something that i kept thinking about when i was writing about the movie and thinking about the movie is that when a director has taken a hiatus as long as Todd Field did, you can, you know, sometimes wonder, like, why are they making this film? They must have something to say, right? Like, they finally have a reason to make this next movie. And here, it proved to me, like, he has been watching the world from afar as this keen observer and taking it all in and thinking, like, I, I know what I have to do. But I just still can't even imagine, like, with conducting or really classical music, anything, I can't imagine knowing that much or learning that much about a particular area well enough to make a film like this that is so confident. 
this was legitimately a worry for me before I saw it because mm -hmm. as much as I can consider myself a cinephile and whatever, I was so intimidated before I saw this because I felt like, you know, I can like classical music, but if you try and ask me a question about, I'm not going to give, I won't have an answer. So I felt like it was so much was just going to be so far over my head that I would just like maybe be able to respect it, but not maybe enjoy it the same way as somebody obsessed with composers. Mm -hmm. Never felt like that ever, not for one minute. It is a highly functioning, super intelligent movie and story and, and screenplay, but I never felt abandoned by it ever. I think that's a great distinction right that like some of these films can feel cold and alienating but this one never leaves you hanging and you know if you start talking about egot at the beginning that i'm good <laughs> i'm in yeah that's for me Wait, have we talked about how i paused the movie on her wikipedia page and saw what she won her egot for wait what so she she won her egot within a span of i believe it was five years from 2006 oh to God. 2011 <laughs> She won her Oscar first in 2006 for a film called Patterns, which is just great. Again, the patterns that are drawn all over the but movie. What a total, like, Cassavetti's, like, title. She won the Tony for score, though. And the key thing I remember that I told Nick was that she effectively took it away from Lin-Manuel Miranda for In the Heights, which I feels so funny. That's amazing. <laughs> But yeah, it was the categories were listed, so I just paused. I was like, I need to see what she won or how she won her EGOT. And you can find it on the Wikipedia. But Krista, who edited her Wikipedia page, might be lying. So we don't even know if it's true. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I love that. Oh, my God. And totally also the the letter Bernstein, like, estate letter. Mm hmm I mean, what a gag. How, yeah. how great is that? It's yeah. I'm worried I'm, for Bradley Cooper with Maestro. <laughs> and you should be. Yeah. You should be. <laughs> now we've made it. <laughs> the final category, best picture. Our precursors, we have PGA, Globes, BAFTA, Critics' Choice. I mean, kind of everything, but those are the main ones here. Our nominees, we have All Quiet on the Western Front. That one at BAFTA. We have Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inishirin which won the Golden Globe for a comedy musical. Then we have Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which recently won PGA and SAG Ensemble. The Fablemans, which won the Golden Globe for drama. And then we have Tar, which won the trifecta of Film Critics Awards. So that's the New York Films Critics Circle, the LA Films Critics Association, and the National Society of Film Critics. And then we have Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness and Women Talking. I think we have our front runner and probably our winner, but how do you both feel about this as a group of movies for the year? It reminds me a lot of 2010, the year when we had like Inception, Toy Story 3. Mm -hmm. We had a good mixture of not just genres, but films that I felt like a lot of people saw. There were certainly those. And here we have Avatar The Way of Water, which made so much money we had everything everywhere all at once which was which is an indie but was a box office success 
Top Gun Maverick made a ton of money. Elvis made a lot of money. That sort of defied expectations, I think. In what that did, we have an international film. We have, I mean, Triangle of Sadness also feels it's an international film, just English language. Um, and then we have your films that I feel like could have been nominated for the at the Oscars maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Tar, like that gets nominated, I think, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, whenever it gets made. A film like Women Talking to, like a smaller issues-based drama, The Banshees of Sharon. The Fablemans, I think also just being that autobiographical story of a filmmaker who is really respected in the industry. I think it's a good mix. And the winners are pretty spread out too. Like even though we have a front runner now and that for me personally just won't change. I think PGA and SAG Ensemble, that's a pretty undeniable combination. But I feel like throughout the season... Everything has been more spread out than I anticipated at first. And I do like a good number of these movies. Yeah, it took time for all the pieces to land. I mean, SAG being at the end of February, mm -hmm. like a full month later than, than it usually is, was weird. So it's even though the season is not as long as some recent seasons have been, the timing and the space spacing of everything have been so completely different. And you cannot underestimate the impact that that has. If Everything Everywhere had one SAG cast like over a month ago, we'd be looking at that. Okay, cool. Here's the front runner. And then BAFTA would come. We have a new front runner. It's all quiet. And look at how quick everybody kind of scampered from, wow, all quiet. Maybe that's like, you know, really at the top contender to everything everywhere because of PGA and DGA. Everything happened in the space of two weeks. And with Oscar voting just a week away, there isn't, this is this has been the, the greatest success of everything everywhere, which is now going to almost a year since its release, is that it has gotten to enjoy the status of underdog and front runner in equal amounts without backlash. If we had a mm -hmm. longer period of time between those the SAG, DGA, and PGA wins that it just had and voting, there would be enough time to stir that pot. And competing studios would have their, their little barbs uh, for why something shouldn't win. But yeah, there isn't going to be enough time or for like a real backlash to kind of take a hold or even like front runner status to be a negative impact. It's the, the timing of everything this season has kind of dictated that. But same time, I love how spread out so many of these wins have been, and certainly in other categories. I mean, we are looking at an unprecedented approach to the Oscars with so many things up in the air, which is great. It's wonderful. Even if everything everywhere is like, you know, really going to win and, and and we can just kind of know that things could still <laughs> go a different way. Things are things are weird. This whole season mm -hmm. has been back and forth. It's weird. But I mean, it is again, it's a great lineup. It, this is the reason why I love 10 uh, nomination slots. I love it. Five is great. Anything in between is not. I don't no. ever want that again. It could it should only be five or ten. 
but I really love I really love ten because it it does give it gives a little bit to everybody and it it doesn't feel quite so exclusive or elitist as as five could feel sometimes not always because you know you get often here's the four real like real awards Oscar movies and like here's like the one weird pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get more of that with 10 and I just think it's um, I think it's cooler I like it and I love this list I do love five I think five feels really special like you have just five best picture nominees but I think if you have 10 this is what a list of 10 should look like it should be this like diverse in terms of genre right like there are, of course films that aren't here then I don't and I still don't understand why they're not here how they didn't happen but I do feel like this is the right mix you want to hit if you have 10 yeah there's no blind sides or extremely loud and (laughs) close here thank god (laughs) this is a good list yeah having this snapshot it's just so much more inclusive and I think the conversation and probably what academy members and leadership wanted is, you know, to widen the conversation and to engage more audiences and viewers. And yes, we get that with a lot of the box office returns for these films, but it just makes it more fun too. I mean, you can talk to your friends about, oh, like what best pictures have you seen? And multiple friends are telling me, oh, I have four more to see before next week or whatnot. And whether they like them or not, it makes it less of this stuffy nosed thing that happens every year. It's just fun to look at a slate of movies that we can actually look back on and say, oh yeah, that was a great year of movies. And also too, for all of the worry and conversation about theatrical distribution and windows, which I totally get and understand like nine of the 10 of these are on streaming services or eight of the 10 are on streaming services. Now avatar, obviously everybody's already seen and it's really just women talking. That's kind of a little bit in, in limbo, but everything else, this, this is, this is a great place for the Oscars to be as well, because the thing that I think has often been one of their recently been there, their downfalls is that people haven't seen the movies. They haven't come out. You get all these, you know, late December limited releases, and then they start trickling out in January and February. And people haven't seen them. What are they going to root for if they haven't seen a movie? Uh, you know, and so everything here, we have so many movies that came out in spring and summer. It's yeah. crazy. This is. Again, this is so representative of a year of movies, not just November, December, when everybody crams all of their award stuff together. It's it's awesome. And I hope then, because of that, studios will maybe start looking at that a little bit differently and maybe won't cram all of their big or like adult prestige dramas in the theatrical calendar in November and December. Like maybe we'll get some in April or in March. Maybe we'll get them throughout the summer. Like they can see that, you know, maybe campaigns and the ways that, you know, word of mouth and the ways that audiences connect with movies, it can change. Like we're not like technically post COVID. COVID is still happening. But now it feels like things are different in the ways that people are viewing movies and when they're watching them and connecting with them. Very much. And we also can see the power of 
film festivals here. Nine mm -hmm. out of the 10 movies premiered at festivals. We've got Toronto, Venice, Telluride, South by Southwest, Cannes, and a wide range too, all mm -hmm. year long. I always forget Elvis was a Cannes movie. <laughs> Yes, that was it's so gun. perfect, glittery, glitzy, <laughs> and Top Gun. Yeah, Baz Luhrmann is a, is a perfect can person. Mm -hmm. Oh when yeah, guest was there. Oh my god, it was insane. It was yeah. Talk about like an indulgent, opulent party too. It was <laughs> disgusting and beautiful. Oh, I love it. So Eric, what would your write-in vote be? After Sun for everything that I've espoused about after sun she also knows how to end a movie knowing how to end a movie will get me every single time and there's a lot of great movies on this list that end exactly right uh the ending of after sun is flawless no notes 10 out of 10 the under pressure sequence without question for me is the best of the year that is a song I've known my entire life and listened to my whole my whole life. It's been in countless movies. The sound mix and version of this is very is different. It's slightly different, uh, which I think is one of the exceptional things about it. And it was a filler track. It wasn't even intended to be the final one because they didn't think they were going to be able to get it. But when you do a different mix, or you know, even if you have like different vocals it's a lot cheaper but they did enough to that it was that they were able to get it but it was a temp track which blows my mind i can't listen to this song even randomly without absolutely like melting into the ground i was doing laundry and listening to just a playlist and it came on and i just crumbled that sequence is everything even if like the rest of the movie was terrible, I'd be like, I'm sold, I'm in. And watching the ending with Paul Mescal at the airport and going through those doors and that flash that we see that's behind those doors, I'm barely holding it together right now. <laughs> it's It's a lot, it's a lot. I just think it is, like you said, I cannot wait to see what she does next. I hope my... I hope my hopes aren't aren't higher than than they need to be but I I just it's a flawless movie. It's a perfect first feature I think too. My write and vote speaking of perfect endings would be for Nope. I love the ending of this movie. I think it has a great final shot. I love Kiki Palmer's character speeding away on that motorbike. It gives me chills every time. Tears well in my eyes with that Michael Abel's score. But we talked about, you know, films about filmmaking and about Hollywood history. This film does that in such a different and unique way that feels so perfect for Peele's next film. This is actually my favorite Jordan Peele film. He actually had this perfect idea of how he wanted to tell the story of this family and also of these greater issues with like race and technology and spectators and spectacle and he did it, I think, in such a fun way. The images from this movie, I still can't get out of my head. I feel like I saw something brand new when I was watching this film. And I don't know. It's just, it's fun to get a big film that isn't, 
IP. Like it, I wasn't familiar with any of these characters or hadn't seen any of these images before. And that was all the more thrilling. And I said this on our episode when we talked about it, but if you have a shot in your movie where blood is pouring down a house from the sky, I am in. <laughs> that was such a great shot. And talking about movies that, you know, talk about Hollywood, my vote would be for She Said, which I think just shines such a special light on something that is so near and dear to Hollywood. And that is still happening. Like these trials are still happening for Harvey. But when I saw the movie, I was just so utterly struck by the material and how Maria Schrader's direction really blew me away. I mean, it the way she included interviews and dialogue of what actually happened was done in just such a specific way to distance itself from these characters and the locations. And I think by the end, obviously we know what has happened since the publication of the book that it's based on, but it still held so much power in the words that were on screen and the performances that we get by people who were actually affected by him or by people portraying them and who communicated with the real life people throughout the production. So I really enjoyed watching this movie and I wish it got more attention. There were certain things that of other films that didn't show up here because of being a box office failure. And I mean, that hasn't kept certain films from becoming nominees in the past. So it being a problem now for this movie specifically just seems a little bit unfair. So I really would have liked to have seen it here and in screenplay before. I kind of wanted to put all of my write-in votes in every category, but (laughs) this is where I think it really should have been. It's a little on the nose, too, that the movie breaking down the downfall of the person who really changed awards campaigning forever is the one that gets kind of shuffled aside. Mm -hmm. Okay. What do you think should win Best Picture? Our last, very last question. Eric, you can do the honors. So, although I have chosen Tar in Screenplay and Director as my should, I'm picking everything everywhere all at once. And the reason is, like I had said earlier, my my emotional connections to things the 2022 movies, 2022, however you want to say it, have just been very visceral. And I loved the movie when I first saw it. And then I watched it with my family. And, you know, unlike other people that maybe we know, my family loved it. And it started, you know, kind of like, like Pinocchio. It was hitting me different when I was watching it with them. While obviously not an immigrant story is the story of my life, the marriage relationship story was really hitting different. And when we get to Quan's laundry and taxes monologue, forget it. I was done. I was done. I I was stop. It was yeah. So I'm I'm going with a very gut emotional choice in in picking this as a as a should 
I mean, I feel like that's how a lot of voters vote, though, right? Like, you you vote with the movie that has a hold over your heart a lot of times or who that makes you, you know, feel connected to something else you know, when you're when you're in that theater when you're witnessing that piece of art right it's that that connection and what you're experiencing with other people I think that sometimes drives movies over the line to win best picture yeah I mean and and certainly you know in the era of preferential ballads and and all of that and passion versus respect you know there's all of these things mm-hmm. that are in consideration yeah, I think if I were voting, I would put the Fablemans first in the same way that you connected to Everything Everywhere and multiple movies, Eric. My whole heart just poured out for this family and certain characters. Like in that first shot, that crane shot we get, it's a long take and we get to see the literal two sides of Sammy and the way that Spielberg does this along with the dialogue. It's just like... It's everything I wanted to see on screen. And he continues. And in other scenes, you just see the magic happening in his eyes and in Sammy's eyes. And I felt that wholeheartedly. And I rewatched it and felt everything as much as I did the first time. So to feel that, I mean, yes, I get emotional a lot in movies, but this like really stuck out for me this year. So Like for me, this should win, but also everything everywhere should win because it was around for a year. Like that doesn't happen. So I feel how responsive the public was to this movie and the passion behind it. And this entire season, how Michelle Yeoh has navigated and stayed in the spotlight and done all these photo shoots. And it's just incredible to see what she has become, let alone Kihoi Kwan and Jamie Lee Curtis uplifting Michelle Yeoh the whole time. And, you know, just fun to see this happening in a cast. And I feel like we don't get that a lot. So the these passion projects are just so special. In a year where five months ago, I was like, oh, you know, 2022 is kind of forgettable. But here we are talking about these movies still and pouring our hearts out for different movies that different people love. And that's kind of what I love about all of this this culmination and if we're going to talk about movies with great final shots the fablemans oh i mean i love on. it yeah talk mm-hmm. about audacious funny and heartfelt yeah i forget how magical the fablemans was when i first saw it honestly i went to see it with my sister we went to this like early screening just from the moment little sammy goes into that movie theater we looked at each other and we both had tears welling in our eyes and some of that is because it's Spielberg and you're imagining a baby Spielberg getting introduced to the thing that's going to be his greatest gift that he then passes on to us, right? But it's also that relatable factor of we remember going to the movies for the first time too and what that experience was like and what it's still like for us and how it still makes us feel like a kid again at times. I'm going to sound like that my heartless self who wears menswear and say that tar would be my vote (laughs) for best picture (laughs) i loved your stories about your connections with everything everywhere and the fablemans but for me i think this whole series it's been it's always hard to answer the what do you think should win question because at the oscars the best movie of the year 
rarely wins best picture or like the best score of the year or the best actual performance like how do we even art is all subjective and so much of it is just the campaign and the marketing and how things happen at a particular time and what feels representative of the moment so in that way it's like I look at this list and I'm like you know is tar the film of the year in that way no but it's my film of the year so I'm just going to stick with that as my vote it's what I would put at number one on my ballot because it is when I look back on 2022 the film that will stick with me forever and to get emotional as well I think like when I think about myself in the future and you know introducing like whether I have kids or you know just like later on in life like what movies I will want to show to younger generations like tar is one where I will be really excited for like my future children to get to the age where they can actually watch tar (laughs) so if I had to like pick a movie from this list to you know like carry on or to recommend in the future it would be tar but I think we have a lot of great options here and this award season maybe because I was too invested last year (laughs) in the power of the dog and everything I just feel a lot calmer now and like much more at ease with everything which is good it could just be because the movies are a little bit better but i think the movies are a little bit better yeah yeah that helps i do (laughs) yeah i love all of our picks though because they're all coming from a place of passion and a Mm -hmm. place of of love all Mm -hmm. of them and i love that we all pick something different i really love that i do too all right well thank you eric that was our final episode in our oscar contender series it has been, as always, like such a fun thing that we do every year going through all of these nominees. And we're so grateful that you were able to join us today for our last episode. I am so honored to be here, truly. I I mean, you know how much I love your guys' podcast and I love you guys. So this is an absolute treat for me. Oh. Well, yes, Eric, thank you so much for being here. Let all of the listeners know where they can find you at awardswatch.com for sure and at awards underscore watch twitter awards watch on instagram and tumblr but tumblr is just like all the articles that are on the site oh my God, so tumblr. <laughs> i it was like not even like it was like an accident i love that was that the Twitter is going down? It it, it was during started. that period. I'm like, oh my God, I'm scrambling. I'm like, let me get more socials. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for listening. Next time on Oscar Wild will be our final episode before the Oscars. We will be doing our, in a way, final. Again, we'll still have guilds that won't have come out yet, but our final Oscar predictions. And we'll have special returning guest, Joyce Ng, one more time to hear what she thinks and is predicting. It's an annual tradition at this point to have her on for this episode, (laughs) just to hear all of her wisdom and what she thinks of these categories. I can't wait to hear. If you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. And if you really like our show, you can subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde, where we have a bonus series. We release our regular season episodes early And on our next Patreon episode, we will be talking about the career of Jamie Lee Curtis, Oscar nominee this year, talking about Freaky Friday and True Lies. So that will be very fun. I'm excited for that one. Thank you, everybody. And we will see you very soon. Bye.